0: This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA
1: Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. I have back with me fan favorite James Kukios. We're here to talk about the firm's April 2019 Top 10 International Develops and Anti-Corruption Newsletter. We take a look at the debate over meaning of agent as the Hoskin trial nears, how the federal court found an FCPA investigation uh, protected by attorney-client privilege, the International Maritime Organization sets up an anti-corruption agenda, and we take a deep dive into the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Program's 2019 guidance, asking what, if anything, is new, how did the, um, how does it assist the white-collar defense attorney and the compliance professional, and should it be read in conjunction with the Benchkowski memo, which was issued back in April of 2019. I know you'll find it interesting. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And I am joined once again by James Kukios, that's fan favorite James Kukios, here to talk about the Morrison & Forster April 2019 Top 10 International Anti-Corruption Development Newsletters that the firm puts out. Uh, we're going to link to the show, uh, to the newsletter in the show notes, and I encourage everyone to uh, to check it out because it's got a lot more information than we're able to go over in our podcast. But James, uh, first of all, uh, thank you for taking the time to visit with me and welcome back.
1: Tom, thanks for the invitation. It's always a pleasure.
0: So James, we have a um, even up until the day of this recording, a highly contested case that may be going to trial, hopefully at some point. Uh, But it involves the the Hoskins matter, and this is continued fallout from the uh, Alstom uh, FCPA enforcement uh, matter from a couple of years ago. Uh, William Hoskins, excuse me, Lawrence Hoskins was one of four individuals who worked for Alstom who uh, were individually charged. And uh, we've had uh, in this newsletter, you guys talked about the debate over the meaning of agent. So I was wondering if you might be able to detail the positions and uh, where it might be heading on this issue, because there's a lot more.
1: Yes, this is a very interesting case. Uh, we've been following it for a long time, and I think most people in the space have been. Um, the it, it really focuses on some of the criticism that a lot of people have had about the FCPA and, and DOJ in particular's approach to DO, uh, FCPA jurisdiction. A lot of people say that DOJ takes a position that the FCPA jurisdiction is limitless, and so DOJ can police the world. And Hoskins really goes right to the heart of that criticism. Uh, long story short, um, Hoskins was a non-U.S. citizen, he was a citizen of the U.K. He was working for a non-U.S. company, Alstom, outside of the United States, the U.K. and France, and... Um, And allegedly participated in a bribery scheme involving Alstom's Connecticut subsidiary uh, looking to do business in Indonesia. Um, And DOJ said, although Hoskins never set foot in the United States, he conspired with the U.S. entity and people from the United States to pay bribes to Indonesian officials to win a power plant contract. Now, Uh, Hoskins raised the argument that uh, I'm outside of the FCPA's jurisdiction because I never set foot in the United States, and you can't use conspiracy. I don't work for a U.S. company, et cetera, et cetera, and you can't use conspiracy and aiding and abetting uh, to get me within the jurisdiction of the FCPA. For a long time, DOJ said that's exactly what we can do, and we're going to do that. Um, In this case, the district court in Connecticut and then ultimately the Second Circuit Court of Appeals agreed with Hoskins and said that, yes, uh, as a non-U.S. citizen who did not work for a U.S. domestic concern or a U.S. issuer, uh, he can't, he's not within himself, the FCPA jurisdictional scope, and you can't use under Second Circuit precedent uh, uh, conspiracy and aiding and abetting to expand that jurisdictional reach. But the court said, if you can prove that he was an agent of the Connecticut subsidiary, then that falls within the statutory language and the jurisdiction, and you can convict him. Now, unfortunately, um, the Second Circuit did not define um, what agent means for purposes of the FCPA. And so the litigants, Hoskins and DOJ, now have to argue for jury instructions. Um, what instructions should the court give to the jury to determine whether Hoskins was acting as an agent for the Connecticut subsidiary? Uh, not surprisingly, the, the two parties disagree. Hoskins is taking a much uh, narrower view and DOJ is taking a much uh, a broader uh, view of what it means to be an agent. Um, and it's it's really interesting here. Um, everybody agrees, Hoskins and DOJ agree, that the uh, court should use the common law definition for agent. So in other words, FCPA doesn't define it. Um, and so the, both parties agree we should go to the common law and use the um, definition of agent. They both agree that an agent Is controlled by a person or company that it performs a service for but then they disagree on the next step how that should apply to Hoskins. Um, DOJ says it should be a, a fairly broad meaning of control including that control may be inferred circumstantially and from the words and actions of the parties involved whereas Hoskins takes a much narrower and more formulaic approach to it. Um, So it'll be really interesting um, to see what the court decides to do in terms of the instruction. And then it'll be interesting to see what the jury, if it does go to trial, what the jury will find there. Uh, For practical purposes, if DOJ gets a favorable ruling on the instruction and is able to convict Hoskins under that, then um, the... Jurisdictional limitation by the Second Circuit may not be as um, severe as it may seem on first blush, and and DOJ won't be able to use necessarily conspiracy and aiding and abetting anymore, but may be able to use an agency theory going forward.
0: Let me geek out with you for a few minutes, James. Yeah, sure. Uh, I guess my confusion, or at least my question, relates to uh, your language around a jury instruction. That implies to me that it's a factual-based analysis. I would have thought that the court would have ruled on agent status as a matter of law.
1: Yeah, agent status is a factual matter. Um, the definition of what agent is is uh, is a question of law, but whether somebody meets that definition is a matter of fact for the jury to decide. Oh, huh. okay. Yeah, well, you- it'll be interesting. It'll be very, very, very. You know, we had we had the sort of similar issue in Eskenazi and about um, what is an instrumentality of a foreign state. And our first position was that was a question of law that the judge should decide uh, as a matter of law, whether Haiti Teleco was an instrumentality. And the judge said, I'm not doing that. That's a question of fact. Um, So we had to uh, deal with a jury instruction for that. And we had to figure out how we're going to prove that at trial. And ultimately, we were successful, and the 11th Circuit agreed with us and agreed it was a question of fact and put out the Eskenazi factors. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's interesting, and it just goes to show this one statute, um, which doesn't necessarily seem that difficult when you just read it at first blush, has a tremendous amount of nuance um, that is sort of being fleshed out in real time in some of these cases, like Eskenazi before and Hoskins now.
0: So the, uh, the next issue, James, is uh, I found this really interesting. The uh, International Maritime Organization set up uh, an anti-corruption agenda. And, and what I found so interesting about this was this is a, a business trade group, or excuse me, it's a part of uh, the United Nations, but it specializes in shipping and really maritime issues. And they recognize the, the unique nature of the potential of bribery and corruption in their industry. And uh, I was wondering from the newsletter's perspective or where you guys sit, do you see this as something that other NGOs and maybe even trade organizations are beginning to take a look at uh, bribery and corruption internal to their specific industry or their specific business and try to help companies navigate that?
1: I do. I I mean, there's a lot of trade organizations out there that do um, regular training and have conferences and guidance um, for their industry members on avoiding corruption. The maritime is interesting. I mean, this is always one where it, it, it just jumps out as a high risk industry because you're going from port to port around the world. And when you're going to these ports, you're just inherently and inevitably going to be uh, dealing with foreign officials, whether it be uh, customs brokers or maybe the Port Authority itself is owned by the by the local government. Uh, and so you can just see any number of um, opportunities for corruption, not that they are corrupt, obviously, but you, it's a high risk of that because of the the heavy involvement in um in uh, uh, with all the interaction with the foreign officials, um, so it's really good. I think, um, you know, no, I, to my recollection, maybe a while, a long time ago, but I don't think there's really been a maritime company or a shipping company um, other than freight forwarders and things like that that have have had a a public FCPA problem yet. Um, but you just look at the industry and you think. They have to interact with foreign officials so much, there's got to be high risk. And so I think it's a really good – and and the International Maritime Organization has has realized that. And they see it as not only a a corruption risk, but a safety and security risk as well. Because obviously, um, you could be paying bribes to get um, terrorists to the country, nuclear material. Those are the worst-case scenarios, um, but it could be really terrible. Uh, And so I think it's really great that the IMO has stepped up and said, you know, we're going to uh, publish guidance on how we should um, uh, combat corruption in the maritime industry. And it looks like the solution is going to be that the IMO is going to propose that uh, the IMO regulations and requirements for the maritime industry align with the United Nations Convention Against Corruption It makes perfect sense. IMO is part of the UN. UNCAC um, covers all kinds of corruption. So it makes sense. But I think it's a really positive development. And it is something that we see other trade groups doing as well.
0: James, we had an interesting ruling, I thought, in uh, attorney-client privilege issue for an FCPA investigation. And uh, one of the things that I really couldn't tell from the write-up in the newsletter was whether the investigation only reported facts, whether the investigation reported facts and attorney-client uh, thought processes, analysis, uh, proposed remediation, uh, and then uh, also that this was in a civil case, not uh, an FCPA enforcement action, uh, where the the claim was, I believe, of wrongful termination of a, of a distributor. Well, what were your thoughts on this case?
1: So this is always a a big issue whenever you're doing an internal investigation, whether it's in the FCPA or any other, um, you know, white collar or regulatory arena is making sure that you're able to protect the internal investigation, um, under the work product and turn to client privilege doctrines, um, and defense counsel for individual counsel, uh, defendants. And, uh, in this case, uh, a, a, a jilted lover, in some ways, um, are always trying to undermine that and and get the underlying documents and things like that. So, basically, just to set the stage here a little bit, what happened was uh, in early April, uh, the Eastern District of New York held that documents created by external counsel during an internal investigation into potential FCPA violations are protected by the attorney-client privilege. Um, the court ruled that a U.S. medical device maker did not have to produce to a Chinese manufacturer documents created by its external counsel during an internal investigation into these uh, potential FCPA violations by the Chinese manufacturer. The court rejected the Chinese manufacturer's argument that the documents were not privileged because external counsel had been hired to make findings of fact, not to provide legal advice. Holding that fact finding is a crucial part of determining proper legal advice that the two roles are not mutually exclusive, um, so it, it's it's always this fact versus law versus legal advice is always so critical because on the one hand, when you're dealing with DOJ and SEC and other enforcement agencies, they ask you to produce to provide facts, not privileged materials, and that helps companies say well, we're not waiving the privilege because we're just pr- providing facts and it helps DOJ and SEC avoid well in DOJ's case a policy violation they're not entitled to ask for uh, attorney client, client and work product material um, and so the Chinese manufacturer here tried to turn that on its head and say well look you know you're internal investigators you're you're working an investigative function you're just getting facts so none of what you did was privileged and the court said it is much more nuanced uh, those facts were developed in large part in order for the lawyers to be able to uh, give advice to the company about things like, how do you remediate within the confines of the law? Was was there a legal violation? Um, what legal obligations do you have going forward? And so the court held, like these things are, you know, when you're in the midst of internal investigation, uh, they are not mutually exclusive. Fact-finding and providing legal advice, they're actually... Uh, intertwined and you're right the ruling was made in a civil suit that the the distributor argued that they were wrongfully terminated um, and so they wanted to get to the bottom of the facts and and what happened during the internal investigation and the court said the company did not have to produce all that material so just a, a very good um, opinion to read for practitioners in this space or companies that are that are Conducting internal investigations and deciding how to engage counsel and whether which part of their internal investigative function to use to to conduct investigations, always have to keep those things in mind: attorney-client privilege and work product.
0: James, and now I want to turn to what may have been the biggest development in the month of April. Uh, and that was the announcement of the uh, Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Program's 2019 guidance. I happened to be at the uh, ECI conference where uh, Brian Benchikowski announced uh, the new program, so I was fortunate enough to hear some of his remarks about it. Of course, was able to download it and, and study it. And I really wanted to maybe get two or three of, of the take- key takeaways from you um, First of all, uh, is anything really new or is it just perhaps a refocus a little bit?
1: I'd say it's more of a refocus. Um, there's a lot of overlap between the two. There's nuances here and there that are different, but I think it's more of a refocus. I think the biggest practical um, difference here is that when the original corporate compliance guidance was released, um, it, it, it only came out on the fraud section's website there wasn't a whole lot of fanfare. It wasn't even on DOJ letterhead. Um, there was kind of a funny letterheads and blue triangles, things like that. Um, and there wasn't any publicity about this. It just went kind of was released in the dead of night. Turns out, it was an extremely helpful document. Um, you know, to try to understand. Uh, it was a series of questions that the fraud section may ask a company that's coming in to talk about the problems that they may have had and how they fix those and how they're going to prevent them going forward. So it's an extremely useful document for companies to either prepare for a meeting with DOJ or to just benchmark their compliance programs. But technically, it only applied to the fraud section. Now what's happened is the, uh, the Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division has taken it for the entire Criminal Division and said, this applies to all of us in the Criminal Division. And we're gonna tie it a little more tightly to the, um, the uh, Philip factors. Um, and so we're gonna kind of show, explain to you how these questions and these themes relate to the justice manuals, uh, federal principles of prosecution of business organizations, how it's all a cohesive whole, and we're gonna have this apply to the entire division, not just the fraud section. So to me, that's the biggest. Um, there may be individual um, changes that are significant, Uh, But overall, it's the expanded scope and sort of the expanded vision that I think are the the biggest takeaways from it. I'm curious your thoughts, Tom, since you were there and you heard firsthand. So, um,
0: you know, it reorganized things uh, a little bit. I thought the opening three questions of is your program well designed, Uh, is it uh, being applied adequately, and then does it work or a good framework uh, to consider? the Specific elements that they then laid out. Uh, I thought the perhaps the for me the largest refocus was two areas. One was in culture. Um, certainly, that has been a part of FCPA compliance programs at least since the 2012 resource guide. But here it was uh, really focused in in a way that I didn't hadn't seen before. And the second thing was the 2017 evaluation really introduced the term operationalization, and this, uh, the 2019 guidance, had, um, I thought, a a focus on continuous monitoring, but the next step, which is ongoing improvement of your compliance program based upon continuous monitoring. So, people had understood continuous monitoring was needed previously, but I thought the emphasis or the tying of um, ongoing improvement directly from your continuous monitoring, i.e., a, you know, a feedback loop or whatever you call it in a, in a documented way that you could demonstrate you were upgrading, you were you were watching what you were doing, you were learning lessons, and you were applying those lessons, if I could use some Texanese there. Um, uh-huh. So I thought uh, that was a little bit of different refocus, and, and I've really been trying to um, talk and emphasize that change. And really, the last thing was that, you uh, it struck me that it really seemed to me that this was, uh, not so much part two of the Benchkowski memo, but you should read them both as as one lengthy, um, uh, dissertation from, uh, from the department of justice, where the evaluation was sort of part one and the Benchkowski memo, uh, was part two, what you do if you find yourself in an investigation. And then of course the part about, um, what the department had to do to justify a monitor, but I also thought there was a a roadmap in the Benchkowski memo for a company to avoid a monitor. So I thought, really, by laying them side by side and reading them all the way through, it provided just a wealth of information.
1: Yeah, those are very interesting points. I think both of those documents, the Benchkowski memo and the the guidance, as we're calling it, um, are really important for companies to take a look at and to use as benchmarks for their compliance programs um, and and really see, you know, if we do have a problem, how is DOJ going to evaluate this and are we going to be in a good shape or not? Uh, and I think you're right. And if you can answer those questions positively, uh, you're more likely to get a more favorable resolution, including no monitor. So they're very important documents um, for companies to pay attention to.
0: So, James, uh, once again, uh, this has been a fascinating exploration of the uh, Morrison and Forster Top 10 and uh, International Anti-Corruption Developments for April. I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me.
1: Thanks, Tom. Really appreciate you having me.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. We'll link to the uh, Morrison and Forster April. 2019 Top 10 Developments in Anti-Corruption newsletter in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to this episode and I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening.